Hey, what's your name? Aaron. Aaron, Aaron. Aaron. nice to meet you, Aaron. I'm kidding. <laughs> You're okay. I won't trip over it. I feel so needy here. Sure. Good morning. I got two minutes before it's afternoon, so good morning. Hey, uh, we're going to jump right into today's text. One thing while you're looking for that, uh, we are going to read Philippians 3, verses 1 through 14. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, it's page 831. While you're looking, let me just remind you, um, Brian, just let you know that he's going to come back for the next few weeks and he's going to unpack his sabbatical. Um, We are making a commitment to you that we will return to Philippians and finish this out um, uh, when that's done. So if you're wondering... Are we going to do the last two chapters today? The answer is no, Um, we're not. So Philippians 3, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of Paul as he writes to the church in Philippi. He says, Further, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness... Faultless. Verse 7. He says, But whatever to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness from my own that comes from the law, but that which, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow obtained the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. I think I've probably read this, I have no how many times that I've read this in the last week as I've prepared, and even now as I stand up here and read, it's, there's stuff in here I just, I keep thinking to myself, Wow. There is so much in these few paragraphs. And Lord, we have 25 minutes to unpack them. So what I pray is that you would use your word to penetrate our souls, that you would use it like surgery. You said it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, to divide. And so Lord, I just pray that even for those areas that I can't cover in the short amount of time, that you still would allow this passage to sink into our hearts, to sink into our souls, Lord. Help us to be who you've called us to be. Help your word to be powerful in our lives. Thank you for this amazing letter written so long ago to a small church in Philippi that's still changing lives today and changing our lives as we sit with it. Thank you that your word is so powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, so we're in this series called The Satisfied Life. We're talking about having more joy, more courage, more contentment in your life. And the one thing that we keep saying, and we are going to keep saying, is that this satisfaction in life, this courage, joy, this contentment, is not circumstantially driven. There has to be something else going on besides circumstances, because we all live in the world, and we know circumstances kind of can betray us. So, so the, the, the satisfaction of life comes from this deep knowledge and this deep understanding of who God is and how much God loves us. That knowledge of God trumps everything else. So this series, I, I think this series has been a great deal of fun. For me personally, it's been fun to, to prepare it, but it's also been fun for me to watch how it's, how it's working in, in, in you guys. So I had a conversation this week in the hallway, and somebody said, I'm loving Philippians. Our small group talks about it every time we get together. It's really challenging. There's been lots of areas for you to, to communicate with each other. So I love the fact that people are talking about it in small groups. I love the fact that it's stirring something in all of us. One of the things we talked about very early on is we wanted this series to be something that we marinate in. Remember, we use that term marinate in, and don't, don't treat it like a condiment. Don't just pour ketchup on top of it. It's like something that you're just adding to a burger maybe, but they, we actually want you to soak in it. We want you to marinate it. We want you to, to let it go. So we're asking you to be reading it. We're asking you to be talking about it. We're asking you to plug into the classes. So there's Tuesdays at Grace. They still are teaching through Philippians. Just come. It's not too late. You walk in, have dinner, sit there, study Philippians, live in Philippians, think about Philippians, talk about Philippians, and begin to live into the amazing teachings of Paul to the church in Philippi. So what I want to do real quick is I want to remind you where we've been the last few weeks because it's important to where we're going. So Paul has just spent a great deal of time explaining or using four men as examples of people who lived into the exhortations of Philippians. These are four men that we can look to and say they are living up to the very things Paul says. When Paul says to, to deny yourself, to not look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others, to, to lay down your life for your friend, all of those things Paul is saying. And now here's a few people who have done it. And the first one he brings up is Jesus. And he says, as a matter of fact, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Easy, right? Not so much. It says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Remember we talked about equality with God. The whole idea is that Jesus had power, he had privilege, he had comfort, but he laid that all down. The scripture says, but he made himself nothing. What does that tell you? It tells you that he had total control, that he could look to his own interests if he wanted to, but he set aside his own interests Right? He gave away that, that equality with God, never stopped being God, but gave it away. And it says that he made himself nothing, taken on the very, the very nature of a man, not just a man, but a slave. Not just a slave, but a slave that went to death. And not just to death, but death on the cross so that you and I could be saved. So that's the first example of someone who laid down their lives for others. And then Paul says, look, even myself, if I am being poured out like a drink offering, he says, and what he's saying there is, even if I die, even if I die as I work to advance the gospel of Christ, even if I die serving you, the church, I'm okay with that. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm going to rejoice. And then last week, we looked at these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what we saw about a Timothy and Epaphroditus was what seemed to be very ordinary men. Right? They, they don't have some extraordinary gifting or we don't see that anyway. There's something that seems very ordinary about them. Yet they have this extraordinary impact in the kingdom of God. And they're used as examples to all of us of how to lay down your own interests or set aside your own interests for the interests of others. And what's most encouraging to me anyway is that they are ordinary and that I can do that. And that you can do that. That we have the ability to set aside our own interests and love others well. To lay down our lives for our friends. 
So Paul has gone through all of that. And now if you're reading Philippians and it feels like Paul is taking kind of a right turn. It feels like he's, he's, he's going down a rabbit trail. But I want to assure you that he is not going in a new direction. What Paul is saying is the only way to do what I have called you to do, the only way to really lay aside your own interests, the only way to live out the teachings of Philippians is to have this grounded connection in Jesus Christ. Right? The only way to have contentment in life is to understand who Christ is. And, and you're right. So he is going out of his way now to help teach and to help show them how to have a greater foundation in Jesus Christ. If you're going to do these things that I've told you, your foundation has to be rock solid. So I have no idea where I am in my notes, but give me one second and I'll figure that out. So look at verse 1. Paul starts by saying, Further, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, look, I know I've told you this before. As a matter of fact, if you look down to verse 18, which we didn't read verse 18, but it says, for I has often told you this before, and now I'm telling you again, even with tears. He's passionate about what he's saying to him. But he's saying, look, I know I've said this before. I know I've even written to you before about the same thing, but I want you to get it. And when I read that, I thought about being a parent. How often there are certain things I say to my kids over and over and over. Look, I know I've said this to you before. But if there is drinking at that party, you call me and I'll come pick you up. Right? There's certain things we just, they're, they're, they're mantras, if you will. But we say them to our kids because we want to make sure our kids have them. Look, I know I've said it before, but do not text and drive. Do not. So, so whatever that is. And why do we say it again? And so Paul says, I say it to you again because, look at what it says. It says, because this is a safeguard for you. Why do we say it to our kids over and over? Because it's a safeguard for them. So Paul is telling us something that's a safeguard. What is a safeguard? It's something that you put into place as a protectionary measure. It's a way of providing protection around you to keep you from harm. Why do we tell our kids over and over the same thing? Because we want to keep them from harm. So Paul is giving us a word, and it is a word that is to serve as a safeguard for us. So if Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, pay attention. I know I've said it before, pay attention, but this is a safeguard for you, then we should sit up straight and we should say, oh, I need to pay attention to this. Paul is saying something that he said over and over, and it's important to my spiritual health that I get what Paul's saying. So he says it's a safeguard for you. And then he wants to make sure we know and the readers know where this false doctrine, where this bad teaching, where this thing that's going to lead them astray comes from. So he begins to describe the ones who are sending out the false message, if you will. So look at verse 2. So he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And everything I read in the last few weeks as I studied for this says that this is totally lost in translation. What Paul had done here in the original language is he'd used the, 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 a, the language in a creative way. And it kind of had a, a rhythm and a rhyme to it. All the words started with the same Greek letters. There was kind of just this flow. It may even have sort of rhymed. But he had come up with a, a quippy way of saying it. Well, when we translate it, all that literary um, creativity is lost. So all we get is words. But the other thing that's obvious is these words aren't nearly as derogatory as the way they're translated as they were in that day. Even offensive, even bordering on, on not swear words, but offensive words in the language. The people reading this would have been like, wow, that is really strong language. And one of the ways that we can get to that is even think about calling somebody a dog. It has, doesn't have nearly the same impact as it would in the Greco-Roman world. So I have a dog. This is Oswald. Um, so Oswald is fairly convinced that he is one of my children. 
He thinks he's, he's one of my kids. He, he only wears glasses when he reads. Um, but he's a great dog, right? But he's, he's cute. He's, he's affectionate. He's, he is just a very special part of our household, right? And, and, and we love dogs. Dogs are great pets. Dogs are a million times better than cats. Dogs are awesome. Yeah. I knew those would be fighting words with somebody. Me and Brian will have to talk about that later. He's got a cat. I don't. Anyway. But think about it, in the Greco-Roman world, dogs weren't pets, they were scavengers. It, would, it was the equivalent of like they were rats. They, they traveled through the, the town and they got into the trash and they spread it all over the place and, and they left their, their deposits in inconspicuous places and people wore sandals, need I say more? I mean, dogs were not loved by the people. They were mangy, disease-ridden, scary, nasty animals. If you've ever traveled to a developing country, uh, whether it be Haiti or India, all the places we've been, dogs are always around and they're always, sorry, they're just gross. They're nasty. It's just a scary. And I always, every, every mission trip I have to say to people, don't pet the dogs. Like we're so used to, oh, cute little puppy. Right. So, so you stay away from the dog. So they mean something different, right? So, so even dogs is lost on us, but, but Paul is going after them. So he says, Look, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. That doesn't need much translation, right? And watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. That one's a little bit confusing. But here's the deal. The readers in, in Philippi would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. The minute he said mutilators of the flesh, they would have known that he was talking about the Judaizers. Who are the Judaizers? So the Judaizers were a group of Jews that would follow behind the movement of God. So God is, is moving and people are coming to Christ and they would immediately follow into the, the cities where they've heard about people coming to Christ and they would convince them, look, this Jesus thing is good. It's good that you accepted Jesus, but you need to be a Jew as well. You need to add the Jewish law to your customs. You can believe in Jesus, but you need all of this other stuff as well. And here's the deal, and I think it will be relatively obvious to you. The most committed way you could show yourself to be a Jew was to allow yourself to, be, to participate in circumcision. You're pretty serious if you're willing to go to that state, right? So, so changing your diet is one thing, but circumcision... You're committed at that point, right? So what he's trying to say is, look, watch out for the Judaizers because what they're going to do, and so throughout all of his letters, not all of his letters, many of his letters, he keeps warning them, look out, look out, look out. Don't add anything to the gospel. It's Jesus and nothing else. Make sure that you know it's just about Jesus. Don't keep adding things. And there was this propensity to put in place. So he says, I want to safeguard you. I want you to make sure you know this going forward because he knows these Judaizers are going to roll into Philippi and they're going to begin to convince people that, look, Jesus is good, but it's Jesus and the law. So then look at verse 3 because he says something absolutely phenomenal here. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and have put no confidence in the flesh. And to get what Paul is saying here, we got to go all the way back to Genesis 17 and we got to understand what it means to be the circumcision. So you go back to, and you don't have to look it up, it'll be up on the screen, but, but Genesis 17 verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to, Ab it says Abram, sorry, he appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. This is before he changed his name, so he's Abram. And he said, I am El Shaddai, which means I am the Almighty One. I am the one true God. Pretty impressive when God shows up and introduces himself that. And then he says, walk with me and be trustworthy. I have spent all week hearing that in my ear. Walk with me and be trustworthy. I love that. I'm going to preach that sometime, just that one sentence, because there's so much in there. Walk with me. It's so relational. 
It's not a list of rules. God says, walk with me and be trustworthy. Some translations actually say, walk before me. Live your life in front of me. I'm your God. I'm the Almighty God. Just walk with me and be trustworthy. How cool is that? So anyway, verse 2. He says, I will make a covenant between us and I will give you many, many descendants. Jump down to verse 9. He says, God said to Abraham, he's changed his name now, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants in every generation, this is my covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Circumcise every male. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it will be a symbol of the covenant between us. On the eighth day after birth, every male in every generation must be circumcised. (coughs) So, I know this is strange. I know this could be even a little bit awkward for us as we listen to it. I don't know how many times I have to say the word circumcision in one, one sermon, but it's in there a lot. So here's the deal. The people of God, the people of Abraham, actually became known as the circumcised. So they wouldn't say, hey, there's the Israelites, or they may not say, hey, look, there's the Jews. They would say, hey, they're the circumcised. That became kind of their, their moniker, their, their nickname. If, if, you know, think about it, if they were a high school, that was their mascot, yeah, right? So it's weird. I get it. It's weird, but that's what they were known as. And then Paul says this amazing thing. He says, no, no, it's we who are the circumcision. What is he saying? He's saying, we are the children of God. We are the ones living under El Shaddai's covenant now. We are the circumcised. How amazing is that? Paul is saying he's been shipped us, but we have to remember he is writing to a church full of Gentile men. They have not been physically circumcised. So something else is going on. There is a spiritual circumcision that's going, taking place there. And Paul is making it very clear. You are the ones that are living under the new covenant. Because of Christ, you are the new church. You are God's chosen people. And here's how God's chosen people will be known. That's what Paul says. So you look at it, he says, and here's how we know that they're God's chosen people by three things. We who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. I want to unpack all three of those. First, he says, we are the circumcised. We who worship Or the word could be served there. We who worship are served by the Spirit of God. I love this because you see, if you go back to the early church, and you remember when we studied through Acts, we learned this, but but Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus Jesus rose from the dead, and he said, I'm going to send my Spirit. And then he sent his Spirit, and all of these Jewish people began to have these amazing experiences with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came and they spoke in tongues. The Spirit of God came and their lives were literally changed and God was doing this amazing work. But then something really radical happened. A group of people who weren't Jewish, who were Gentiles, also heard the message of Jesus and they said yes. And guess what? They began to speak in tongues and they began to experience all the same things and God began to work in them. And so there was this movement of the Spirit and people who weren't Jewish and all the Jewish people had to sit up straight and say, wait a minute, maybe this is bigger than we thought it was. And they had to decide, well, what's it all about? How do we know if it's really God? Well, they knew it was God because they could see the movement of the Spirit. They could see the work of the Spirit in them. And so Paul is saying, look, here's how we know if we're the circumcised because we can see the Spirit of God moving in them. 
Do you see what I'm trying to get at here? It's, it's so cool. So if, if all of our lives are about worship, all of our lives are about serving, it's the Spirit of God that empowers us, that gives us the ability to do that very thing. It's the Spirit of God moving in us. So Paul says God's people will be known by the work of the Spirit in them and through them. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we? Are we known as individuals and as a church, are we known by the movement of the Spirit? Are we really known? Do people, can people look at us and see God moving in our lives? Can they see transformation in our lives? Can they see that God is actually doing something in each and every one of us? Are we known by the Spirit of God in our lives? The second thing he says is that we glory in Christ Jesus. The word glory could also be translated boast. Depending on what translation you have, it might even say boast in your Bible. We boast in Christ Jesus. This is just another way of saying we know where our strength comes from. We know who we are because of Jesus. We know that without Jesus, we can't do anything. We know that anything good that comes out of us is because of Jesus. It's a picture of the Spirit of God moving in people and them knowing that it's a work of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but when the Spirit of God does anything in me, I almost immediately take credit for it. I do. It's just my nature. All of a sudden, I'm like, dude, man, look what God's doing, right? So the problem is... If we're really doing this the way Paul is saying, we're really going to be known as the circumcision. It's the Spirit of God moving us, and we boast in nothing but Jesus. So, so if God does this transformational work, and if you, if you really feel God changing you, it's because of the work of the Spirit. If you have ministry accomplishments, it's because of the work of the Spirit. If you are a good mother, if you are a good father, if you are a great friend and bring Jesus into your family, it's because of the work of the Spirit. It has nothing to do with us taking any credit in ourselves but giving credit to Jesus. And the question is, do we? Do we give all the credit to Jesus? Do we boast in Christ and Christ alone? And then Paul says something else that, that we will be known by. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh and this is very similar it's just a, a little bit different than what he just talked about the boasting in the spirit it's, it's, it's real similar but but Paul wants us to understand that we tend to take um, our we tend to take pride or, or boast in in other things other than God like our resume so Paul wants to make sure they know look if anybody can boast in something other than Christ I can so so really what he's saying Anything else besides Christ would be the flesh, right? I'm using a little broader than what he means here, but anything else besides Christ is the flesh. And he says, if anybody has the resume, I do. So if you look at the passage, he says, he gives him his Jewish pedigree. He says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. We, already, we just saw that in the covenant, didn't we? That's, that's exactly what he's supposed to be. He says, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Guess what the tribe of Benjamin was a tribe that Saul came out of, the first king. Guess what Paul's original name was? It was Saul. He was named after the first king. He has this incredible lineage, this heritage. He is a, a, from a great tribe. He has this great heritage, a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee. And here's what happens. We read the word Pharisee and we're like, ooh, we don't like Pharisees. But we only see, feel that way because we hear the word Pharisee through the lens of the Gospels. Jesus was not very kind to the Pharisees at times. And so we begin to think they were all bad people and, and evil people. But in that day and age, to be a Pharisee was really to be the special forces. It was to be the best of the best, the smartest of the smartest. You were handpicked, and, and every young Jewish boy wanted to be a Pharisee. So he's just given his resume. He says, I was a Pharisee. And what we know from Paul's writing, he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee trained by one of the best Pharisees. So he has this incredible pedigree. He says, as for zeal, 
or to be a zealot, you could even put there, persecuted the church. And as for legalistic righteousness, which, by the way, is an oxymoron, and Paul knows it, and he's writing there, if, if you could ever get righteousness through legalism, which he's making a point in this teaching that you can't, so he's being very clever the way he writes this, for legalistic righteousness, I am faultless. So he's given his resume. He said, if anybody could take pride in something other than Christ, I could. I have this amazing pedigree. And he wants to make sure everybody knows how he feels about all that. So from verses 7 through 10, he unpacks the rest of it. He says these words. He says, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. All of that is loss. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, I consider them rubbish. One of the translations for the word rubbish, I love this, is dog food. You think about it, the people, right? He just got done saying they are dogs and their legalistic ways are nothing but dog food. And it's all rubbish and all that matters is that I gain Christ. To Paul, his training meant nothing compared to Jesus. His titles meant nothing compared to Jesus. All of his accomplishments meant nothing compared to Jesus. It all meant nothing. All that mattered was that God was working through him. The Spirit of God was working through him, and he was going to boast in nothing but Christ alone. So Paul says, you got to get this. You need to understand this to safeguard yourself, to put a protective measure in place. This is so important. But the problem is it's sort of lost in translation because there's pretty good odds no one is trying to convince you that you have to be circumcised in order to walk with Jesus. We no longer fight that battle anymore. But the truth of the matter is in our human nature, we add things to the gospel. In our human nature, we say, yeah, I know it's about Jesus, but I got to do this too. I know it's about Jesus, but just this as well. We tend to do the same thing. So, so, so lose the, the whole thing about circumcision. I know that's not the pressure, but what is it that you add to the gospel as a way of making yourself feel like you are a good Christian? So we have this thing here we call the six essentials, right? The six essentials are going to come up on the screen. And, and here's what I want to tell you. If we are not incredibly careful in the way we teach this, and if you are not careful in the way you listen, and if you don't put safeguards in place, then what you could very well hear us saying is it's Jesus and gathering. Oh, no, no, it's not Jesus and gathering. It's Jesus and gathering and connecting. Now, if you do those things, then you're going to be, no, wait, it's not Jesus and gathering and connecting. It's Jesus gathering, connecting, and serving. And he, he, I talk about serving all the time. I get serving, but, but we're not adding it to the gospel. And this is so subtle. It's so subtle, and it's been, I've been talking about this all week with people and trying to figure out the right way to, 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 to explain it to people so they understand it because it's so subtle. But it's subtle but monumental. As a matter of fact, it's so monumental that Paul keeps teaching to it and saying you've got to put it in place to safeguard yourself. And the best way I know to explain it is to give you kind of a, uh, some examples. So if you come to church to be a good Christian, then you miss something. If you come to church because you feel like if I don't go to church, I'm just not a good Christian and I got to get there because I want to be a good, I want to do what God wants me to do, so I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to church. If you feel guilt and shame when you don't come to church, then you've missed the invitation of God. 
Because all of life is about knowing Christ, the foundation you stand on. And the reason you should come to church is because God is in this place and you have a chance to interact with the living God in a way that you can't do anywhere else. There's something that happens in a church, in a congregation, when we worship, when we study, that just, it's unique. It's what God has designed. But God is here, so you should want to come to church because when you come to church, you get to know God more and God is your foundation, so you want to be there. Do you see how it's subtly different? So can going to church help you to walk out your faith? Absolutely. Do we think it's important? Absolutely. But it doesn't make you a good Christian. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Whether you go to church or not, when God looks at you, if you've accepted to Christ, he sees you as righteous. But he wants to be known by you. That's why Paul prayed for the church and said that they would know they would know God more with knowledge and depth of insight because that's where contentment, that's where courage, that's where joy comes from. So let's talk about morning devotions. I hope that all of you have some type of rhythm in your life, right? Some type of rhythm that gets you into the word, gets you into some prayer time in the morning. Well, I know that a lot of you, and sometimes myself, fall into this trap of doing it because we feel like we have to. Like that's what it takes to be a good Christian. I got to have my devotion time. I got to have time in the word. I didn't read the word today. And it's the same thing. If you walk away from not getting to your devotions because life got in the way, and just so you know, life will get in the way. Some mornings it's not going to work out. And if what you feel is guilt and shame, like, oh, I am not a good person. I didn't do devotions again. That is not the spirit of God. That is not the invitation of the spirit of God because what God is saying to you is spend time with me in the morning because I'm your friend. Spend time with me in the morning because I'm your dad. Because I love you beyond your wildest imagination and I want you to know me more and more. And if when you miss your devotions, you spend the day thinking, I missed my father. Now he's still there and you can still have time with him. But if it comes from a deeper place of missing a moment of intimacy with God, then you got what it's all about. It's about Jesus as your foundation and nothing else. Is this making sense what I'm talking about? Good. So we're entering this Lenten season. And every year, we've been doing this for quite a few years, and I think it has been very powerful for our church. I actually think it's, it's launched our church into some new things, and, and God has honored it. So, so there's this Lenten season coming up. So on March 10th, we're asking you to begin a fast, and to fast all the way through Good Friday. Most people break the fast after the Good Friday service. So um, if you'd be willing to do that, we would love for you to participate in the fast. So I've talked to people. I talked to one person that's going to fast complaining. Huh? That's a pretty tough one. Yep, complaining I've heard. Um, I've heard social media. Uh, I've heard coffee. Uh, I don't, I'm not prescribing what the fast should be. What I am asking you to do is prayerfully consider fasting for those 40 days. Imagine if all of us were fasting something for the 40 days, that God would just honor that. But here's the deal. Don't fast to be a good Christian. Don't fast thinking that's what you have to do to earn something from God. You already have what God has offered you. You are already his son and his daughter. You don't have to do this to earn something from God. But if you're taking time and carving something out of your life and making a sacrifice for God allows you to experience God more and have more of God's presence in your life, then why wouldn't you do that? Because that's the invitation of God. So I know it's subtle, but it's monumental that we get this because Paul says, look, You need to put a safeguard in place. Don't add anything to the gospel. It's Jesus and nothing but Jesus. But we have a tendency to add to the gospel. So with the six essentials, I just want to make sure you hear, we know that these do not make you a good Christian. All these are are ways that we've tried to help you to put something into place to make space in your life for God to show up so that you can know God more. So, fact of the matter is, 
we are all guilty of this. We are all guilty of adding things to the gospel, of, of trying to be good in order to earn something from God, of trying to earn our way to God, to earn some kind of favor with God. We all fall into that trap. Paul knew it. That's why Paul writes about it so much. That's why he says, make sure you know this. Put safeguards in your life. We all make the mistake. But the truth of the matter is, the invitation is from God, I want to make myself known to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you beyond your wildest imagination. And the scriptures actually say, I want to reveal my secrets to you. How intimate is that? The God of the universe wants to whisper secrets to you. But are we carving out the time? Are we making space to listen to the Father as he whispers those secrets into our ears? Here's the deal. I love, one thing I love about Philippians is Paul is very clear to point out to us that he is on the journey with us. So this is a series called Satisfied Life, and, and near the end he talks about contentment, and he says that I have learned to be content. What does that tell you? That he hasn't always been content. He had to learn this, and he does the same thing for us here. So look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do and this is a word for all of us, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forget where you've fallen short. Forget where you've screwed up. Forget where you haven't gotten it right. And press on towards the goal. What's the goal? To know Christ more. To stand solidly in the foundation of Jesus and nothing but Jesus. Press on to take hold of Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Paul is clarifying this. Put safeguards in your life. Don't add anything to the gospel. It's all about Jesus. Your life in, with God is all about Jesus. Add nothing to it. It's Jesus plus nothing. Stand up with me. Let's pray for closing prayer. Lord, I am so grateful for this letter. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in us and through us through the teachings of Paul to the church in Philippi. Lord, I pray that today, we would put a stake in the ground and we would say it's Jesus and nothing but Jesus. That our heart's focus would be to stand on a solid foundation of Jesus. Lord, that we would understand that any other foundation is shaky ground. Anything else that we stand on is going to crumble. Lord, help us to know who Jesus is in our lives, how Jesus has, has, has radically transformed our ability to walk up to you and to be a son and a daughter. Lord, help us to be who you've called us to be. Lord, thank you for this letter. Thank you that Brian is back. I pray that you would bless him as he prepares for the next few weeks. Lord, I pray that we would come back. I pray that you would have it snow on Friday instead of Saturday so people would come to church. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the love of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Hey, there is a baptism class immediately following um, this service. If you're interested, you can go right up to boardroom two upstairs. We would love to talk to you about baptism. Thank you. <laughs>